0: Many of you get in touch with us looking for book recommendations, and we try to suggest three new ones each month. Our selection for October hopefully offers something for everyone. First up is Monty's Men by historian John Buckley. It tells the story of the British Army from D-Day to VE Day and takes a new and very fresh look at the quality of the men who fought from Normandy to the Baltic and how the army grew and developed. We think you'll find this take absolutely fascinating. It certainly opened my eyes. Next up is volume two in Spike Milligan's legendary war memoirs. This one's called Rommel Gunna Who. It covers Milligan's time in Africa in 1943 during Operation Torch. If you enjoyed Adolf Hitler, my partner's downfall, you will love this. Book three is by a less well-known writer called Alexander Barron, who turned his experiences fighting with the Pioneer Corps into a series of novels and short stories. From the City, from the Plough tells the story of the Wessex Regiment, preparing for D-Day and then fighting its way through Normandy. Barron was brilliant at capturing the everyday lives and characters of the regular soldier, and this book paints a vivid picture of the boredom pre-battle and the sheer hell of fighting in the Bocage. So there you are, three cracking reads for October. As usual, members of the Independent Company get all these books 20% off through Waterstones, and a big thank you to them. If you bought all three, that would save you just over six quid. Happy reading. Actung Actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, and I'm gonna hand over to James now to do the introductions for our uh, very special guest.
1: James. Well, yes, this is this is an old friend and I dare I say it, mentor of mine, um Professor Jeremy Black, who is Something of a legend in the historical firmament um, was also coincidentally at Durham when I was and so taught me um, uh. in early modern history um, over a number of different courses and fantastic he was too. And um, then uh, some years after you... Uh, I can't remember quite when you moved down to Exeter, Jeremy, but you, you took a post at, at Exeter. Um, I then moved out of out of London. Um, we We sort of got back in touch and we've sort of regularly met up chewed the cud i've kind of sort of lent on you for advice and and one of the things i do remember very clearly one of the first things you you were telling me about was how to stand up and give a public lecture Uh, and i remember the three things you said was never ever use powerpoint for anything other than photographs never use any kind of words at all um Always explain what you're going to say before you start it, um, and and start on a light note. Uh, and those are th- those are three briefings <laughs> I've stuck to religiously. So I never ever ever use notes. Oh, that was the other thing. Never use notes. Um, always just stand up and deliver. And of course, that's that's the best advice of all. I think because I think when you, when you know when you are standing up, and Al obviously as before performer, you'll know this. You know you've got to look people in the eye. And I think the best the best. Um, talks when you are you know when you're delivering a hi- a historical talk the best talks are when it is a performance rather than a kind of dry monotone kind of reading off a script from a lectern kind of thing yeah anyway so anyway it's a great pleasure to have you on jeremy so thank you for joining us
2: a pleasure. And I've never, ever chewed the cud in my life. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's go. <laughs> uh,
1: but, but one of the things I think is interesting, one of the things that we, you and I have t- talked about a lot over the years is sort of, um, you know, I sort of felt I had a sort of different thesis on the Second World War. And and fortunately, it was one that you kind of, sort of broadly agreed with. And I do think the kind of the narrative on, on the Second World War is changing a bit, isn't it, over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years?
2: Yes. I mean, what you've been doing is producing some marvellous campaign histories. And I think there was a while in which, as it were, the war became just a matter of war and society. The home front, Rosie the Riveter wins World War II, the idea that industrial production doomed the axis to failure, etc, etc. So that in a sense, the fighting didn't matter. And on top of that, you've got the ludicrous accounts by Max Hastings suggesting that the (laughs) Allied armies weren't very good and that the Germans, to the best of my knowledge, lost the war, were in somehow better. So, what I think has happened in recent years is people have pushed attention more to the actual nature of the fighting and what makes for fighting effectiveness fighting cohesion and that's come from a number of different directions from both popular writers and from some academics it's come in a number of countries you've seen for example the marvelous work produced by a generation of American scholars on the Soviet army in World War II and you've seen British scholars looking uh, at for example the British army in Burma in North Africa and in West. In Europe and providing much more bitty granulated consistently quality uh, accounts than these broad brush treatments and I think that's very important.
0: Isn't part of the problem though I mean uh, I did my history degree a long time ago and there was no there was no real opportunity to study the second world war at, a, at a, a, a as a as a form of legit history you know military history has very often been seen as left for the left for the chaps in red corduroys and uh, and so on, and not regarded as, as actually as as a thing for serious study. I'm, I'm right in thinking that, aren't I?
2: Well, I think you are, Al. Yes, and I think given the si- its significance of war uh, to yeah. history as a whole, it is striking that it doesn't tend to always play a role. So that if you're thinking of some of the major universities, there's really very little military history, for example, at Cambridge. There's yeah. very little military history at Harvard, and so on. And one of the problems in the academic world is that the easiest way to get a job um, is to come through one of the more prestigious uh doctoral factories if you like and if you take the United States there are you know very good universities teaching military history but they're not always the leading military universities the same in Britain I mean for example marvelous stuff on World War II at Wolverhampton Gary Sheffield and his mm, group yes. done a marvelous job but I think it's probably fair to say that a graduate of Wolverhampton unfairly unfairly will probably find it harder to get a job than a graduate an academic job than a graduate at Oxford
1: yeah it is really interesting is it because you 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 think of the kind of sort of military historians that are at Oxford and Cambridge I suppose you know one thinks of kind of Hugh Strawn and people like that Well, he's but, retired but also, he's, well, he's retired. retired but he has now retired um you know, then at, at Cambridge, you've got Professor Sir Richard Evans kind of holding court on the Nazis. No, he's, he he's,
2: he's retired as well. He's, he's retired re- as well. Uh, well OK, yes. but he
1: has been in recent years. Yes. But I mean, but 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 he doesn't know anything yes. about military, you know, the military side of things. He knows a lot about the Nazis and um and what life was like in Germany and the Holocaust and all the rest of it. But, he, you know, his 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 knowledge doesn't really extend to military operations at all.
2: No, I I mean, to be fair to Richard Evans, he has retired. I don't think he would claim that. I mean, his background was doing research on cholera in the 19th century in Hamburg, which is what he did his initial very important work on. And then he moved into, as you say, um, the sort of domestic German aspect of the Third Reich. The difficulty is that specifically on Germany, that um, the... Those people who tend to specialize on the Nazi party do not tend to really have an interest in military history. So if you're looking for good military historians on Germany writing in English um, on the Wehrmacht, you'd be looking at somebody like Robert Satino at the World War II Museum yeah, yeah. in New Orleans. And I don't... I mean, I'm happy to be corrected on this because, you know, I'm tired, and as I've just mentioned, I had a, just had a granddaughter. But I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody in Britain at the level of somebody like Satino. I mean, you know, looking at understanding the German army, understanding its, um, in its long term, explaining why the German army wasn't particularly good in World War II, because one of Satino's themes is, repeatedly, is the Germans were structured for a short war, for operational military history, for in particular, a war of manoeuvre and encirclement, and if they were up against people who couldn't be Uh, outmanoeuvred or were able to outfight them, uh, then Then they were stuffed. They were were stuffed. And I mean, what's very interesting, you've worked on um, Sicily, Italy and Normandy. What's very interesting is that in each time, particularly Italy and Normandy, the Germans tried to drive in the bridgeheads And when that failed, they really didn't have much, they didn't have much left in their locker. They were conceptually rather arid. So, you know, people always will tell you how good German fighting quality is now you've got to be very careful here because we're talking about a large number of divisions fighting quality varied within those and between them but on the whole the Germans were much better at the tactical level than they were at the operational and at the operational level what people tend to do is to write up their successes but don't say so much about their failures and driving in a bridgehead is a pretty classic thing you need to be able to do quickly and to do well and they had opportunities Opportunities, for example, at Salerno, they bluntly had opportunities in, in France, given that they knew an invasion was going to come at some stage and that they had a lot of hmm. troops there. But they just didn't manage it, and you know, and then their counterattacks when they came in the Normandy case, for example, the Mortain counterattack, terribly badly handled.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so. This is interesting, isn't it? Because because, because um, uh, military history and, and particularly the, the military history of the Second World War has been sort of eschewed by the ac- academia. Some of these ideas that w- that James is engaged in, sort of trying to knock over, have they've got their they've got their boots on and they've got round the world, haven't they? Is 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 the thing? And there, there's some very set some very set views, particularly particularly about how how the Germans handled the war and 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 this confusion of the tactical the operational strategic that people think well they were they were good in a foxhole so they were better
2: well i agree with you entirely al and can i just say it's people will often tell you the victors get to write the history. In fact, that's yep. absolute rubbish. The victors don't need to. They're, <laughs> a, they're, on, they're on to running the world. Um, the, the, people that, the people that overwhelmingly write the history of the American Civil War tend to be these days on the Confederate side or pro-Confederacy. And what is bizarre is that the German and Japanese account of World hmm. War Two that in a sense that they were better, but that they were ground down by resources, that account has become the orthodoxy. I mean, it was polished by the German generals after World War II, and essentially the German generals, very crudely, mm. but this is essentially what they did, said to the British and the Americans, we, the Germans, were brilliant. We were outstanding. Why then did we lose? Well, the Soviet Union's so big, you know, and it was cold, and there were a lot of them, and Hitler <laughs> messed it up. Never a suggestion, yeah. never a suggestion that they, uh, in any way, were less than brilliantly Competent. And the fact of the matter is they weren't fantastic. Um, and I think it's quite interesting because a lot of the... I mean, I agree with you about the 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 false views getting their boots on i mean part of that is also and there's been some good work on this in the united states the image that the germans created during the war itself so if you're now making a world war ii documentary and you haven't got much money the easiest thing to do is when you want to illustrate blitzkrieg you want to illustrate with german film footage of 1939 1940 41 of you know Stukas screaming down and Mark tanks going across. Nobody ever wants to show you a tank being blown up by an anti-tank gun, um, which is which <laughs> actually you know a fair amount of these happened. Or the fact of the matter, which is very interesting, is the the number of days after which tanks generally ceased to be effective you needed because of course of the actual strain of operations the way in which you had to often you know mend their engines do work on their tracks this sort of thing um that isn't a theme in film in propaganda films of the war
1: no and they're also (laughs) not showing you pictures of, of columns of horses either no. Yes. Well, there's because, a, yeah. because of course the Germans didn't film that. You know, the the Germans wanted to wanted to convey this this image of this mighty kind of this mighty Moloch, this kind of sort of enormous war machine. I mean, people always when when they're talking about about the German military, they always talk about the Nazi war machine, don't they? What what they mean is advancing Panzers, half tracks, Stuka dive bombers, Messerschmitts, and all the rest of it. Well, and, and, and modern
0: uh, modernity uh, a, a, a as modernity. well as the other which is the other really important thing is which is which i think is why a lot of a lot of the sort of discussion of german kit gets hung up on the advances rather than the the things that work you know uh, uh, to to sort of paraphrase david Edson, the sort of shock of the old idea of how you win the second world war rather than by inventing for instance the the v2 you're not you're not going to win you're going to are going to have squandered colossal resources that you could have spent on on more Tanks, for instance. I mean, that's the one of the interesting things. Again, it, you, you mentioned that Allied industry over the, the the idea that Allied industry overpowers poor old Germany, but the G- German industry is is incredibly fecund, but is being misdirected re- re- relentlessly, um, uh, uh, and over these sort of strange projects that are hung up on modernity.
2: I agree with you. And can I also say I agree with you entirely. I would also say that, you know, at the present moment, there is this unfortunate tradition of uh, in public of being critical about the British war effort. Um, uh, I would say that one of the most important aspects of the strategic uh, bombing the combined bomber offensive and of course james has written some wonderful stuff on on that in 1944 is that it really interrupts the articulation of the german war industry if you think about it germany is able to draw on the industrial and mineral resources of europe um, you know so for example the french war machinery is working mm-hmm. you know if the you know the big factories like at uh, bilancorn for example are producing for for the Ger- you know compulsarily, the the germans have got something like nine million slave laborers mm-hmm. in 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 germany you know they are drawing on the resources not just of 1937 38 germany but of much of occupied europe but of course Heavy bombing, and it's interesting, I think the first major industrial site, really big industrial site, to be worked over by uh, British bombers is the big marshalling yards at Ham on the eastern end Mm. of the Ruhr. Um, You know, this is for a purpose. You know, you often hear attacks on the uh, combined bomber offensive as if in some ways it was a war crime. Well, the fact of the matter was that the the German military system, and understandably so, um, you know, it was based, manufacturing was based in large urban areas which were near the coal fields, exactly the same as in Britain. And it's not surprising that if you're bombing marshalling yards, if you're bombing bridges, if you're trying to bomb a plant, then civilians are going to get killed. No surprise about that. Um, But the bombing offensive, I think, was important. It was strategically very valuable to the Allies and um, the... Uh, what it does is it doesn't stop German industrial production increasing um, into 44, what it does is reduce the rate of its increase and it also affects, it creates um, inefficiencies, big inefficiencies are in terms of trying to, you know, because industry rests on mass production of commodities produced at different sites, that is really handicapped by the attack on the German rail system and of course on the French rail system, the French rail system is very heavily bombed and again i mean in this case much more of a tragedy that french civilians get killed because Mm. they were occupied
1: well the 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 the, the german railway network the Reichsbahn, is is really the glue that keeps the whole thing together because they don't have enough fuel um they don't have enough oil they don't have enough synthetic fuel and of course coal is is what is basically keeping the third Reich on standing up at all um and and the the rail network is is key to the whole thing i mean it's it's over which literally everything flows from A yes. to B, um, and so if you if you can neutralise that, you're you're in Stuck. So so absolutely. I mean, I've never understood these arguments against the strategic air campaign because self-evidently, if you're bombing lots and lots of locomotives and marshalling yards and railways and blowing up bridges, that is not helpful to your war. You know, that is not well, helpful to your enemy's war effort. Is yes. It?
0: And 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 if the Germans are diverting forty-five percent or whatever it is of their effort to building fighters to stop that um uh, uh bomber offensive you're ov- they're obviously taking it seriously they're obviously feeling the pinch aren't they and that, again they could be they could be building tanks that they need for the eastern front or whatever else but they're building these aircraft because of the bomber campaign yes
2: and can i add a number of other points i mean there's a very good essay done some years ago by neil Greger on the effect of civilian on civilian morale of the bombing of nuremberg and arguing this really did hit civilian morale there quite harsh. One of the things to me that's always most interesting about World War Two is what happens after. The extent to which there isn't a German resistance movement or a Japanese resistance movement. I think that's yep, very yep. important to Allied success. Mm, now, that
1: in, is really interesting.
2: Now in part, I think there's the technical reason that the Germans and Japanese had been left in power to surrender. You actually had a legitimate body, I mean obviously vile individuals, Admiral Dönitz, but Hitler's designated successor as head of the party, as vice-chancellor, as head of the armed forces to surrender, Uh, and of course we weren't able to do that, or chose not to do it, you can take a point of view in Iraq in 2003 didn't have the opportunity to do it Uh, and the same in Japan, where of course the emperor surrenders through his ministers but the point is also I think that the bombing campaign and the devastation it did bring in the last six months of the, year, of the war in particular helps to destroy any idea of going on resisting. And there's a very interesting recent essay by Tammy Davis Biddle in the Journal of Military History and she looks at this increase in Allied bombing in the last six months. And she links it to growing anxieties on the part of the British and the American governments towards the end of 44 about this issue with German resilience. And in particular, the extent to which the Germans are, um, you know, um, sort of going on fighting hard, that the, the Allies know they're trying to produce the Type 21 submarine they know uh, they are still taking quite heavy civilian casualties from the V2, um, which goes on, in fact, landing in London till March uh, 1945, and that, in a sense, that the bombing is intended for a specific set of purposes to end the German determination to go on fighting and to dislocate its economy completely to that end. So as James says, German tanks cannot operate without oil. You also want to really hit the coal production. And if you look at the Allied planning for the early 45. Uh, campaign in Germany it very much focuses on the idea of cutting off the Ruhr and stopping its links into the rest of Germany so that the Germans will in fact have a coal famine I mean there's there's absolutely no doubt that this that they see this is very consequential and also you know the British and the Americans only have so many troops and you know they there's a limit they don't want to have a grinding down attritional warfare
0: well especially as they've japan to do they've got japan to in do europe. yes yeah which is which is of course the, the thing that often in um assessments of the of the of the western europe campaign or oh, why are the allies why are the allies doing this and they're pulling their punches here, and why aren't they prosecuting this hard enough or whatever why don't they go to berlin well it's because it's because they may have to invade kyushu shortly um at the at the end of the year and and they know they're their uh, casualty projections are basically politically unsustainable so they're thinking well we can't you know bradley's run out of replacements by april yes. 1945 so anyway now now jeremy um we we keep touching on tanks um right. uh, in in this discussion and uh, am i right in thinking that shortly there's a, a a a book about tanks coming from you i've
2: got two books on world war ii coming out one <laughs> is on Tank Waffle, which the University of Indiana is publishing, and the other one is uh, World War Two in a Hundred Maps, which British Library Books is publishing in the UK, the University of Chicago in America, and those are a hundred maps of the time. Wow. And the BL has this series. They've done it already of 100 maps of American history. Susan Shorten did it. And I've tried... Can I just talk briefly about the maps? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Because with the maps, what I've tried to do is, you know, if you're writing a book on world, we we all know this, and the same as if you're doing a programme, you want... There's good work already out there. You don't want to spend your time just producing footnotes on the good work out there. So, look, there are books of maps on World War Two out there. So I, instead of thinking, OK, how should I do this? Let's start with, you know, planning before the war, then invasion of Poland, blah, 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 blah. I, instead of which, what I did was I it types of maps so there's strategic maps about strategy maps on the operational level maps on the tactical level maps on the geopolitical level maps on propaganda and maps on the press and then at the end there's four retrospective maps in other words you know for example the michelin 1947 map on the (laughs) on the normandy beaches that's a retrospective map and what's really interesting is to do that but also through that there's also a about 50,000 words of text, is writing about the mapping of the war at all those different levels. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, we were arguing in effect that the British and the Americans have been underrated. And I think that's true, because if you're looking at the maps, for example, the British and the Americans are doing a formidable job now you're obviously very heavily interested in europe so you've got excellent maps what the british call goings maps it's a british term Uh, nobody else uses that precise term and it basically (laughs) means what the terrain is like you're going to be crossing and the british are really good they get really good at that but on top of that the british and the americans are having to map the world the germans don't have to do that the Japanese don't have to do that. <laughs> but British units, for example, you know, by 1940, are fighting also on the Kenya-Ethiopia border. They've got to, um, you know, they're fighting in British Somaliland. They're fighting in Sudan. They're fighting in North Africa, and etc., etc. You know, the game then goes on. By 1941, you're thinking about where do we get reliable maps for Persia from, for Iran from? Can we use the old ones of the 19th century what new stuff do we have to put on them and the the actual job there is enormous so you've got to do the maps you've got to make them interoperable so in other words if you're giving a map of italy to a and you're into British-made map. It's got to work for Polish units in the British Army who might have different perceptions of cartography. It's got to work for your American allies. You've got to be able to produce maps also <clears> that make sense for somebody flying at great speed above you who's also shit scared of some Messerschmitt on their tail. <laughs> and it's and it's wow. it, and it's really very very impressive this multi-layered map dimension. The same for the Soviet Union. Now the Soviet Union the problems are slightly different. They'd shot a lot of their experts in the 30s for a number of reasons. They'd been duffed up in the purges. They'd done terrible things like producing an atlas, which other Soviet demography, which showed that actually the population had gone down, which wasn't Stalin's good news story. But on top of that, <laughs> they've got to produce maps. So they've got to produce maps of terrain that they have not been on the ground in, or been only very briefly on the ground between 39 and 41. You know, in uh, in the Baltics, Eastern Poland, and they've actually... much of the Soviet Union was very poorly mapped at, the, at this stage. They were in a stage of mapping, so suddenly they've got to produce that as well and make it useful to them. Um, so uh, it's really interesting, the map-making that's done, and then the, the, the pressures that are put on it, so that the speed of operations increases. That's an enormous pressure the ranging is increasing i mean obviously people knew there were going to be strategic bombing nobody actually knew in inco- how far you were going to go people have during the war a devising idea of drop tanks for fighter escorts for example right There people are during the war having to work out how do you coordinate radar information and movable radars not just stationary radar stations how do you coordinate that with being in an aircraft and your as it you know, everything is happening around you. So there's a lot of pressures on, and then on that, as I said, the propaganda mapping is fascinating. That's a different level, but it's where you get your images from, how you decide to present them, and what kind of message you're trying to get across. So James has written on the the Italy campaign, the Germans, for example, drop maps on the Allies, written in different languages for different Allied units, and, but with the standard image of Italy is the a long peninsula, and the Allies are portrayed as snails. So it says how many years to Munich, you know, and this sort of thing. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and it's very interesting because what they're trying to do is engage with a different level of propaganda. There, you know, obviously propaganda for your own public is one thing. Propaganda trying to affect the opponent. So again, German uh, by 44, the Germans are dropping propaganda on uh, on England saying well you know we're killing you with our v1s and none of our people are being killed you're killing us with your lancasters and you're losing this many men uh, and uh, this propaganda mapping is really very very interesting and you know they put on you know lines to show how far they exaggerate but how far their 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 uh, missiles can go so i found the map book fascinating really fascinating to do and i think it's important because it takes us back with the tactical level and the operational level in particular to what troops and commanders would have seen because you know mm. that in a sense is how you see the terrain. I mean, obviously with aircraft, you tend to show people photographs. Sometimes you show ground units photographs, but often your ground unit photograph that you don't have, you know, you do for the invasion of Normandy because you've done an enormous amount of preparation, but your average move across, let us say, 10 miles of countryside, you've not got photos of that 10 mile of countryside. So the only mm. way to visualize it is from the maps. And those are really interesting. And the sophistication in them is really uh, very impressive.
1: Well, Jeremy, I'm doing some some work on the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry at the moment, and I've got got a facsimile set of all Stanley Christopherson's maps that he had, that he was issued with. And um, he became the commanding officer of the regiment on, I think, the 11th of June 1944. And they're absolutely fabulous because... The detail is absolutely enormous. They're pretty accurate. I mean, I was doing something in in Normandy last year, and I was using some of his Normandy maps, and they still worked. I mean, you know, yes. Oh, all, I mean, you know, obviously there are motorways on or any motorways yeah. on, but, but but they're pretty accurate, and it's, and it's wonderful to see all the little doodles and stuff. The other thing I was going to say is just just the speed with which you know you're talking about that operational level. I mean, I think within five days of landing in Sicily, the Americans had set up a map map producing plant operation at Jella or Lakata, I can't remember which one it was, yes. but one of those towers. It was all done and they were producing them, you know, yeah. Oh, day. yes, both
2: the British and the Americans had mobile map productions units which were fitted into small ones, fitted into lorries, and they could actually do maps, and they could produce maps within 24 hours. In Sicily, Amazing. in Sicily, Incredible. the Americans in advance had done some marvelous mapping because they were well, well aware it would be a problem on water sources, and in particular on wells. And there were maps they maps they produced showing wells that would work all through the year, wells that would map. You know, the only work for some of the year. And another area which both the Americans and the British mapped in advance for their invasions is they would produce maps showing which terrain they thought you'd be able to put an airbase base on.
1: That yes, be- I, yes, I've seen some of those. They're yeah. amazing. Well, that's really interesting what you're saying about the water, because in actual fact, within within the same period, they've also produ- got a, um, a water production plant that's producing 25,000 gallons of water a day. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, water is within five. Well, of course, it's absolutely vital. But it, but even so, it's just it it, it underlines, doesn't it, that, that these operations are not just about kind of, sort of jumping out of a landing craft and kind of firing your Garand. It's about it, it, it's, it's about you've got to think a lot more than just that. And one of the things you do have to think about, of course, is mapping. But you also have to think about water, particularly on somewhere yes. like Sicily, where it's where it's scorching hot. Um, Can I I
2: just just add two things on Mm. that? To me, the water side is an aspect of what I would say the British and the Americans were very good at, and I call it combat engineering, because water provision is a form of engineering, just as building Bailey Bridges is a form of engineering, just as, for example, being able to put up pumps effectively so that when the Germans break the irrigation ditches near Anzio so the one of the things both the British and the Americans were very good at was combat engineering and that goes through into the Cold War so if you look at Cold War planning the conflict against invading Soviet forces in in Germany the allies turn around having spent a lot of time during World War two building bridges they built something like 2,000 Bailey bridges in Italy um, having done that the combat engineering teams are, are prepared to destroy the bridges at precisely <laughs> the right moment you don't want to leave your troops on the other side of the bloody bridge um, and so they've got and so and uh, but of course you've got to shoot people at the same time because you know you're going to get Soviet's uh, Soviet special forces trying to stop you. Uh, so it's, and that combat engineering side is, to my mind, an aspect of what we're talking about when we're also talking about mapping on the spot, which is the application of knowledge and information. So in other words, what the British and the Americans did, they were very strong on that. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think partly it's their culture, the very strong mechanized skill elements in the 1930s, you know, the motor car, the way in which so many people had mechanized skills in those societies, which were much more industrial, less agricultural than say the German society. But also I think it's partly because a lot of the British and American commanders, particularly the British commanders, and had a lot of experience in the latter stage of World War I as essentially artillery generals. And they th- saw and they thought in terms of being able to use force in order to move across terrain. So the terrain force ratio is not one in which you express it with you know, sweeping movements of hundreds of miles. And I think for a British commander, the idea that you get the sappers to do this, you put down the firepower to do that, you move forward to get through that lot of woodland by six o'clock, That, I think, was very much part of the way many of them had been trained and had won their experience. I think that's very important.
0: We're just going to take a quick break. We're talking to Jeremy Black, see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways. We're talking to Jeremy Black. And this is a wide-ranging digression fest.
2: Well, Tank Warfare, what I've done is I did, and the reason I wrote these for American publishers is bluntly because I wanted to reach out to a broader market. Some years ago, and I started with uh, Roman and Littlefield, I wrote a series of books on, I did one on Air Warfare, one on combined operations, one on fortification, one on insurrections, one on naval warfare since 1860. And now I've done tanks with Indiana. And what I wanted to do in each case is to say, these are important elements of war. But one of the problems is that in each case, I mean, the classic example is air warfare, they are written about, only by people completely 100% convinced that as one of my former students who went into the Air Force said uh, you know they had six lectures the first lecture was on the how the Air Force won World War One. the second lecture was on the Air Force World one World War Two, and so on so what I wanted to do was to actually say these are important but the way in which you understand significance is contextualizing it so if you take tanks um you know I start off obviously uh, at the beginning and I have quite a lot you know apart from discussing the the early stages but quite a lot on Fuller JFC Fuller and his ideas not just plan 1919 but his ideas his writings immediately after the war in which he looks to the future and he describes how you know Britain is going to be invaded by tanks that go under the English Channel and you know how you will let in next time you invade Afghanistan you will be able to do it with tanks and you know will, therefore you'll have very low casualties etc cetera, etc cetera. now the point about it is not, it's an easy to poke fun of that, but the point is that what Fuller captured in that is a sense that if you just look at a weapon system without considering it in terms of its possible constraints, you go hopelessly wrong. So. By the end of World War I, it was already apparent that tanks, exactly as you would expect, this is nothing wrong with tanks, that they were vulnerable to three principal problems. One, their own malfunctions, which is exactly what you'd expect of any mechanical system two the problems of operating across the physical terrain which again is exactly what you'd expect in any uh, mechanical system and three the nature of the opposition now in a way if you roll on towards world war ii you have that as it were tension between the idea of the tank as something like the aircraft which is going to deliver you a strategic outcome without you having to really think through all the multiplicity of tactical and operational factors that you're considering about now you mentioned for example you were spot on the need for oil if you're looking at tanks you're absolutely spot on about that um, so that it A tank works if you have a very good backup system of repair, of maintenance, but also of supply. And I think it's fair to say that not surprisingly under the pressure of war, it took a while for all of these to come into play. I think by 1945, um, the British and the Americans and the Soviets, the Soviets very clearly in Manchuria, are very good at maintaining, sustaining, and supplying tank forces that are able to carry out operational goals. And I think they're doing that very well. I think it's fair to say that it's not easy to do that in the state of the tanks in 39, And everybody makes big song and dance about the Germans breaking through in 40. Well, to a great extent, that was because the actual friction of opposition was relatively limited, because so many of the core and elite British and French units were to the north, engaging in what they thought was going to be the direction or axis of German attack.
1: Mm. Yes, but also it's because the, the, because very sensibly the Germans are not using their tanks as, um, as major means of providing firepower they they right. they're working together with motorized infantry and motorized reconnaissance vehicles and motorized artillery well and so after things, all you know it, it, the the panzer division is a combined arms unit yes uh, yeah. and, and yeah. although it is called a panzer division and although, although we you know the french and the, and the british call it an armored division it's the german one is is not just stuff full of tanks because yes because their other infantry divisions are walking on their own two feet or using horses, and obviously that's not going to work, so you've got to come up with another structure that enables your panzers to operate, and the only way you can do that is by motorising all the other elements that you need to support that tank. Um, Yes. You know, the tanks themselves, as you point out very clearly in your book are, are are pretty flimsy in 1939 40 41 it's not till the second half of the war that they you know we're starting to talk about kind of tiger tanks and panthers which have become the kind of sort of you know the light motif of the second world war but actually it's not really representative at all
2: yes i think that's right and also by the end of the war you're getting better tank destroyers you know tank destroyers yes. that can take a blow hard and still keep going um, yeah. uh, can I just say another reason? I agree with you entirely. Another reason, which I think is often underplayed, why uh, Panzer divisions bring everything together is that that minimizes the supply issue. You, as it were, you can, right. foc- you can focus your provision of petrol. On a, yeah. on a, and that's quite important because yeah. the Germans didn't have an enormous backup in pe- petrol provision, and I think that's quite significant. Um, interestingly enough, if you want to go to the modern day, as you may know, there's a debate at the present moment about whether the British Army should continue with its tanks. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Now. Listeners will have their own different views on where they think things should go. But one of the interesting problems for the British Army at the moment is we're short of tank transporters. And we actually are about 100 <laughs> tank transporters below what we need to be. So in, in many senses, you've often got to look at your backup systems. Um, and you see, this has become much greater an issue. I mean, this gives you an analogy, that, you know, obviously very different political context, to the analogy facing the Germans. In From 1945 to uh, 1990, the British Army <coughs> on the Rhine, its armour was principally round Osnabrück. Um, it had good tank repair facilities and a relatively short supply chain. At the present moment, the NATO commitment uh, is to supply is to defend the eastern frontiers of Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland, where there are a host of problems in terms of supply network and distance, but also, for example, the actual strength of bridges. There's a whole host of problems, you know, which people and you know, you're not going to get a chance to build a bridge uh, with the so sorry the Russians just sitting around doing absolutely nothing no, um, yeah. if you if that's it, you know. Um, and these kind of factors, and this this was the sort of factor that affected the Wehrmacht when it invaded the the Soviet Union. It's not yeah, yeah. it's not just the Soviet resistance. It's actually that the supply of fuel has to go much further to get yeah, to yeah. them. Not easy. Well, this
1: is the this is the culmination point, isn't it? The point by which which you can no longer operate to the standards that you've set yourself, because your line of supply is so great that that all those that Bevegan's krieg, that kind of sort of you know that 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 war of of speed and rapid manoeuvre. Is just you know the wheels are literally falling off because you're just too far from your sli- supply supply bases. I mean, I'm just looking at this this pamphlet here, which is which is uh, um, oh yes, uh, German tank maintenance in World War Two. And I mean, really, it should be called lack of German tank maintenance <laughs> in World War Two. I mean, what's really interesting about it is they have everything set up um, to do all this. They just don't have the infrastructure to enact it. Uh, um, there's a there's um there's a guy called Adolf. Uh, I think he's von Schell, who was, a, was a put in—he was a sort of uh, put in charge of—he of, uh, was general plenipotentiary of motorized vehicles in the Wehrmacht boy, did he have a kind of tough job on his hand. Of course, you know, he was constantly, you know, firefighting, um, running uphill. Um, you know, it was just completely insolvable because, I mean, if you look at Operation Barbarossa, you've got 2,000 different vehicles. You yes. Know? I mean, it, it's all very well the Germans being smug about all those Morris commercials and, and, and Citroën vans and things that they've captured in 1940. But they all require different distributor caps and, and point systems and, and coils and, and, you know, all the other little things, so you know and, and when you 're kind of three hundred and fifty miles from the from what had been the Polish border um you 've got a problem on your hands you know you can't you can 't just deal with it and and if your tank doesn 't work and your 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 panzer thrust can 't be the spearhead that it is, then it isn't, and therefore yes. you 're going to lose and suddenly all those things that make you special have gone
2: well you 're right there's another aspect um in particular on fuel. Uh, but also on mechanics, who there's an enormous shortage of in Germany. It's the real struggle between the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht. One of the things the Luftwaffe insists on is first call on fuel... And on, uh, you know, they're trying to move their airfields further forward in, in uh, well, both in, in, uh, in Barbarossa, but also earlier in the, uh, in the attack on the West. And the Wehrmacht's saying quite reasonably, well, we need this, you know, these facilities and the Luftwaffe mm. says no. And one of the interesting things about the German system is it really isn't, doesn't cater well for differences like that. It really dis- does not I mean, in a way, Hitler has consolidated all power on himself, um, and you and then actually is a lazy and rather stupid man, and doesn't doesn't. Well, he is. He is. I mean, <laughs> I don't he, disagree. He, and and, and in, there is there's a dysfunctional centre, and then obviously you can add to that <laughs> other agencies like the SS. Um, other agencies that are got their own views. Operation Tot, for example, has its own views on its call on resources, and it makes it very, very difficult. And, you know, there there are faults and flaws in the Allies. We would be idiots to deny that. But the Allies are getting pretty good at running Joint Chiefs of Staff systems, both centrally, but also actually in particular areas. Now, you do have. The principal allied dysfunctionality, I would suggest, I mean, you know, the, everybody talks up the row between, you know, Montgomery and all the rest of it, the Americans love having a go. Actually, the principal dysfunctionality in command terms for the British and the Americans in World War II is that between MacArthur and the Navy in the Pacific. And that yeah. is <laughs> a no, 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 because you know <laughs> I know
1: you have to. Have to right, and, I, I mean, to
2: that. and MacArthur is a much more problematic figure and much harder to control than Montgomery or Patton, for that matter. And yeah. what I find highly ironic is that people don't make that comparison because one that would have been bloody obvious to somebody like Marshall, you know, that we, you know, and uh, and, and you could argue. Again, if you want to press this further, there are disagreements and tensions between the British and the Americans. We know all about them, about dragoon and about whether the Balkan strategy should be pursued, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They again are as nothing about this question of is it a, you know, is it really sensible to get involved in the Philippines? Because to go back to what Al was saying earlier and you were saying earlier, there was a tremendous shortage of troops for the invasion of Japan that was projected. Well, if you're looking at American Army divisions, and you've got to think not just of casualties through Japanese action, but actually casualties through tropical disease, the Philippines, and you could argue the latter stages of the New Guinea campaign, because what the hell was the point of the latter stages of the New Guinea campaign, are taking far more troops out. And again, I'm not being anachronistic. That row was made at the time, as we know, both within the Americans, but also, for example, there was an analogous Australian row because the Australians sent troops into Borneo in '45, And there was a lot of questions in Australia. Is What are we exactly doing this for? You know, that yeah. in a sense, the American Navy has already cut the route so the Japanese can't move. So just them. leave
1: them there to rot, you know.
2: Just leave them there to rot. And if we are going to use troops, surely, as Al is saying, we should be focusing those on what happens about occupying the Japanese home islands. So it's very interesting this. If what you're assuming, and I think you're correct to assume, is that the war is going to end with a war against Japan. And you know, you might say to me, well, that's a silly thing to say, what would have happened if it had gone wrong in Normandy? And I tell you what I think would have happened. I think what would have happened if D-Day had not worked is the first atom bomb would have been dropped on Berlin. I mean, you know, and I think would have killed Hitler. Um, yeah. So, and that would have been the end of the Reich. Um, yeah, the, yep. the, um, but the, the point is that given that you're assuming, I think correctly, that Japan is going to be the problem at the end. And remember, there are Japanese troops over an enormous area. So what you've got to do, you have with Japan to be able to inflict a, such a serious defeat on Japan yeah. itself that Japanese units everywhere else, who you're not even planning to attack, whether you know yeah. there's no plan, serious plan, I don't, you know, there are plans, but there's no serious and short term plan to attack the Japanese in Java, there's no serious short term plan to attack the enormous garrison in Rabul or the garrison in Truk. You know, yeah. there is no plan that is going to actually defeat the Japanese army in southern China, it's just been beating the you know, the the coming. So the only way to get these forces to surrender is to actually get the Japanese government to fall. The only way you can be certain the Japanese government is going to fall is to have the, the ability to plan for an invasion. Now, as we know, the atom bombs are going to deal with this, but people weren't able to be certain it would have that consequence and there was not an enormous number of other atom bombs available so yeah. they did definitely have to plan for these and they were going to really need soldiers they had been shocked at how many num- how many men were lost on Iwo Jima and Okinawa absolutely yeah. shocked um and my own view for what it's worth is that uh, just as the int- growing intensity of Allied bombing of Germany in the last six months of the war, which includes the bombing of Dresden, of course, um, is explained by the strength of German resistance and the failure of Germany to collapse in 44. So in my view, what absolutely determines the use of atom bombs... By, beyond any question of a doubt is the strength of the Japanese resistance of Okinawa and Iwo Jima and one yeah. other episode which really affected American public opinion and that was the going down of the Indianapolis I don't know if you recall that it's mm, on the front page yeah. of all the, well, for yeah. the benefit of listeners that don't recall it the Indianapolis was a heavy cruiser had a very large crew I mean one of the reasons American warships at the end of the war had very large crews is because they're very heavily manned with anti- aircraft guns against um, uh, kamikaze pilots it's a very like the ship is sunk by a Japanese submarine the vast majority of the crew survive and are then eaten by sharks in the water and it was a horrific episode, and I think, and it was fully reported in the American press. And I think the combination of the, you know, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, the Indianapolis going down. I think that they the just Americans, thought they've got to,
1: We just got to stop this now.
2: Yes, I think they just thought we've got to stop this now. But um, but you see, I think this helps to also throw a light on the problem that MacArthur posed. That in a way, the logical. Um, strategic axis. The initial plans, as you know... Oh, actually, I've also got a book coming out. I'd forgotten about that. Next, <laughs> year, next year, I've got a book on strategy in World War II, which Little Brown is publishing. But as you Excellent. know, the initial plans for air attack on the on Japan was that the air attack was to come from China. The point is that, yes, you can fly... Planes off aircraft carriers, including obviously, um, you know, army planes as Doolittle did, which I think came off the Hornet. But the actual, none of those planes could be retrieved. They had to fly on to China, and yeah. you know, your load is limited. If you want really heavy loads, you need to fly off a land, a landing uh, runway, yeah. and um. So the initial plans was for China. And that was one of the major reasons, apart from supporting the Chinese government, for the enormous effort put into sustaining the, uh, over the hump, as it's called, over the Himalayas, building up these airfields. A lot of the supplies was for building up the airfields. And of course, the Japanese launched an offensive in mid 42, which did a certain amount of damage, but then a very big offensive in 44, 45, Operation Aichigo, which showed the vitality of the Japanese army at that stage. And by by even by 44, beginning of 44, even before the American airfields fell, if you look, as I've done at the maps, The maps of the range in which you could fly and come back, and remember, all maps are slightly approximate because you don't know about wind conditions. You have to factor those in. Um, But all of the maps, assuming that essentially the range from the Chinese air bases they're going to have, remember, they didn't have air bases in Manchuria or anything, is going to take you at at best over southern Japan. It's not going to take you over central Japan. So essentially, the Navy route in the Pacific with the attempt to create, you know, the air bases around Saipan is it gives you air bases from which you can bomb central Japan as well. In fact, you can actually bomb into northern Japan, but nobody's really interested in bombing at Hokkaido. But you can bomb into central Japan as well. And that is really important. There's not much benefit once the, once you know that you're not going to be reliant on a China strategy of seizing the Philippines. Yes, you get air bases at Clark Field. Yes, you get Luzon and the capacity to mass shipping there, and that shipping would help you. There's no doubt at all it would help you, no doubt at all, it would help you for invading Japan. But if you're going to have over 120,000 troops tied up in the Philippines, when you're going to be short of army manpower, this ain't brilliant. This really ain't brilliant. And I think MacArthur is a problem. We know what he's going to be like in 1950. It was already apparent that he was a problem in 44. There is the argument, I don't know if you know this argument, I mention it in my strategy book. There is the argument that Roosevelt knew that he needed to be got rid of, but wanted him to stay in command so he couldn't run for the Republicans in 44. I don't Is that know. really
1: true. I, I don't. don't
2: know true. I don't know. I don't know if it's really true. It's an <laughs> argument that has been made. I mean, as you. I mean, um, MacArthur <laughs> was a political figure. Um, he had, when he before he went to the Philippines, when he'd been chief of staff in the, the early thirties, um, he had political links. He, of course, was to be discussed vaguely as a potential Republican candidate for fifty-two. I don't know. But it simply, it's simply—it's certainly the case that Roosevelt was uneasy about uh, MacArthur, and of course there was the direct example of 1864, when you know Lincoln Lincoln sacks McClellan <laughs> as command of the Potomac, McClellan then runs for the Democrats in the 64 presidential yeah. against Lincoln. So you know it is uh, again. I mean, it's an issue if you're going back in 1847. The the, the Americans have gone into Mexico in the north under Zachary Taylor. They've done quite well um, in in 46. In 47, um, uh, uh, Polk pulls away the troops from that, any more troops, and instead gives the troops to Scott for an amphibious attack at Vera Cruz and march directly on Mexico City from there because he's worried. There's no two ways about that. He's worried about Taylor's presidential and political ambitions.
1: I don't know. Well, Uh, there's also absolutely no question at all that MacArthur's uh, a hugely ambitious man but um jeremy we've got to um we've got to uh uh wind up now um we're <laughs> overrunning but um well let's do this again come- let's, no, do-, let's well, no. do it again let's for, do this for, again for, for, yes, for yes for absolutely the strategy, when you, your strategy book out it'd be great yeah. to get you back on yeah, i always i kind of had a feeling this was going to be pretty wide-ranging um and uh <laughs> and so it's proved to be but, but can i just fantastic. say can i just say That
2: makes it interesting and you've got to remember, people like Churchill, people like Roosevelt had a historical memory. Roosevelt, yeah, yes. Roosevelt had been involved in American politics for a while. He knew a lot about the... He was about the navalism of the 19-teens. You know, he, Churchill himself had been in government, you know, <laughs> since since virtually... the. These people have a historic... So have Stalin. Stalin, for God's sake, had written a history book. I mean, these people... The Japanese plan essentially is to rerun the russo japanese war so these people they are using new machinery and we have to understand this new machinery but they are also using it in terms of their idea of the strategic geography and culture of their state and that is framed in part by historical debate Amazing. Well, Jeremy, no, 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 thank you true. so much.
1: Thank you so much. Well, let's, I, 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 let's can do this again, Charlie. Let's can do, do this yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do but, it again. But that's been absolutely fantastic, and I can't, Brilliant. I can't quite get over what we've covered in, in 59 <laughs> minutes. But it's been it's, it's been fantastic, been pretty broad. Brilliant. It's been Brilliant. wonderful, Jeremy. Thank you. Well, if thank you send much. me a
2: link, I shall look at it, and I will send it to various family members and things, so i would be grateful. But, uh, you know, th- but greet- greetings to everybody. And just to say to people, you don't have to buy my books. I hope they'll be available in libraries or things. But there are a lot out there, a lot out there, a lot <laughs> of military history. And my view is war is so important that you cannot leave discussion of war simply to people who think it's a sort of a pathology or think that it's all expressed by as a product of as it were male inadequacy or the strength of manufacturing systems <laughs> yeah. or yeah. whatever you need to understand war as a complex process, and we need to actually honour the memory of those who risked their life. History is a trust between the generations by taking them seriously and not writing them off. I think that's very very important.
0: Well, uh, what better note everywhere. to end on? I completely well, thank agree. Thank you very much. No, no thank you. Thank terribly. you. Wonderful. Cheers. Thanks everyone for listening. Cheerio.